please do have open Matthew chapter 9. It's just over a year and a half since Claire and I moved back to Bangor, over two years since I've been your minister here, but just over a year and a half since we moved back. I'd really only lived in Bangor for a few years as an adult. I spent some of my uh, student years at Queen's University living up in Belfast, and by the age of 26, I'd already left Bangor to go and uh, be in other places. So any reflections I've ever had on, on Bangor were only ever half-baked and not very mature. So while it's true that I'm coming back to a place that I've known for a long time, it's also true to say that I'm coming back with a fresh mind, uh, with fresh eyes and an open mind. I'm keen to understand this city and its people, keen to learn how best to reach people here for Jesus Christ. Coming back, I've been reminded of one aspect of life in Bangor that I remember from the old days, uh, Lower High Street. It's somewhat changed, but it's still very much there. That concentration of pubs and clubs at the center of our city, it comes to, to life on weekend evenings, it carries on into the early mornings. Depending on where you live in Bangor, at least some of us come through that part of the city, through the one-way system on our way to church. And it creates this interesting juxtaposition of two worlds. The Saturday night life of Lower Main Street and the Sunday morning world of Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church. What I'm gonna tell you now doesn't reflect very well on me, but tell you I must. There were times in my life uh, when I was on my way to worship here and other places like it, when I felt judgmental as I traveled through Lower High Street and places like it. There they are, the sinners. And here I am, well saved. They're going to a nightclub, I go to church. Look at what they're wearing, or not wearing, as the case may be. Look at me in my Sunday best. I guess you could describe what I was uh, feeling at those times, a, a sense of spiritual superiority. I'm not proud of it, but there it is. Why do I tell you that? It's because I think it raises some important questions for us. What does God think of sinners? What does God make of people who don't come to church, but who go to pubs and clubs instead? What should we think about those people, those of us who long to follow Jesus Christ? We'd better have a good answer to that. Unless we know what God thinks of the people on Lower Main Street, Lower High Street, sorry, about our colleagues and our neighbors whose lifestyles are so very different than our own, un unless we know how to think about them, we won't know how to relate to them as God would want us to relate to them. Thankfully, our passage this morning will be a great help to us. 
Jesus had just healed a paralyzed man in his hometown. Noble was sharing this with us last week. He's on the road out of Nazareth when he sees Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus says to him. Same invitation as he'd given to the fishermen, if you remember back in chapter 4, to Andrew and Peter, James and John. The thing that's surprising here about the invitation is the person who's invited. Uh, The fishermen were interesting because they were clearly uneducated, unqualified, not typically the kind of people a, a rabbi would choose. But here we have a man who's unqualified for for different reasons. A first century Jewish tax collector is quite literally the scum of the earth. These Jewish citizens, what they've done is they bought franchises from Rome to allow them to tax a neighborhood. Once you'd paid for the privilege of taxing, you could tax pretty much anything. If it moved, you could tax it. You could tax somebody's boat, the crop they caught, their house, uh, the crop that, the, sorry, the fish they'd caught or the crops that they'd grown, as long as Caesar got what he wanted for that neighborhood, you were allowed to raise as much money as you wanted and keep all the profits. These were wealthy, wealthy men. They were rich on bad money, rich off the backs of their own people. In Mark's gospel, the tax collector who's called to follow Jesus is referred to Levi, son of Alphaeus. And in Luke's gospel, his name is simply Levi. Levi is a priestly name. Is this man from a priestly family? Did his mom and dad want him to become a priest? If so, their sense of disappointment that their son is now a tax collector couldn't be greater. We can be pretty sure that Matthew was shunned by his community. If there was a barbecue in the neighborhood, Matthew wasn't invited. If there was a a school reunion, his name was struck off the list. You avoided this guy like the plague. Every self-respecting Jewish person stayed away from Matthew, the tax collector except Jesus. Follow me. So Matthew got up and followed him. In verse 10, we have Jesus coming to dinner at Matthew's house. Luke tells us again a little bit more about Matthew's party. He says, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. Levi, the despised tax collector, hosted a party for Jesus and he invited all his friends. Matthew tells us that many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Any self-respecting Jew, we've said, keeps Matthew at arm's length. The only people at this party are the people who have no self-respect. Friends, of Matthew, the tax collector. How did this party even come to be? Let's try and imagine it for a moment. Jesus had called Matthew to follow him. Matthew knows that that means he needs to shut up shop, close the office, and get on the road with Jesus, leave Nazareth behind. As he's packing up, Jesus notices one day that Matthew seems to be a bit down at the mouth. It's my friends, 
you know, the guys here with me in the office and the fellows at the bar, what about them? Jesus asks. Well, they're the only friends I've got. I've been with them for years. They're not as bad as people make out. Take Mike from the office for a start. I know he has language you wouldn't want to repeat in a Presbyterian church. I know that. But, but he's been volunteering for years at the hospice. Tony, the bouncer at the bar, like he could break you in two like a twig, but he's, he's the best friend I have. Okay, says Jesus, go on. What's the problem? Well, I'm going to miss these guys. I've got nothing against Peter and James and John. Jesus, they seem, they seem all right, but they're really a little bit Sunday morning. And I'm a wee bit Saturday night, if you know what I mean. I'm going to miss my friends. Jesus starts to smile and shake his head. Matthew, you, you haven't understood me. You think I've come to quarantine you. You think I've come to take you away from your friends? You think that following me means leaving people behind? No way. Quite the opposite. I want to meet them. Are you serious? Jesus, these guys, I've said before, their language is very colorful. They're a bit rough around the edges. None of them have shirts and ties, never mind a suit. Don't worry about that, Matthew. I wasn't thinking of meeting them in the synagogue. Let me ask you, what do your friends enjoy doing? What do you guys do when you're together? Do you go bowling? Do you play golf? Do you go paintballing? And just then, Matthew's eyes light up. Jesus, you should see me cook. Until you've had my penna with chicken and sunblushed tomatoes, you haven't left. Perfect. Jesus says, I tell you what, why don't you throw a party? Throw a going away party one last time to be with your friends and introduce me to them. And so Jesus ends up in Matthew's house. He's wealthy, we've said that. He has this classy split level bungalow up in the hills above Galilee. Parked outside is everything from BMWs to Harleys to limos. And as soon as you open the front door, you see that you haven't come to a Christian conference here. All the guys are wearing earrings in all sorts of places. The girls are tattooed all over. Music so loud that the floor bounces as you come in. Matthew, he's buzzing around, making connections more than a, an electrician ever could. He introduces Peter to a tax collector friend who's president of the Nazareth Anglers Club. He points Martha to the kitchen and she's, she's making friends with the caterer. Simon the Zealot, he's sitting in another corner. He's having debates with all the political activists in the crowd. And Jesus, he is loving it. Saints and sinners together in the same room. No social distancing in sight. Everyone is having a great time. Everyone is. Except, well, who, who isn't having a great time? Have a look. Verse 11. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees are a religiously conservative branch of Judaism. They've looked at the Judaism of their day and they've seen that it's compromised and it's weak. They've responded by committing themselves to purity. They've committed themselves to keeping from everything that would defile them. They won't be spending any time with tax collectors and sinners. There's that sense of spiritual superiority we talked about at the beginning. It's worth reflecting for a moment on their question. In these gospel accounts we're reading, it's clear that everybody's trying to work Jesus out. Do you remember we saw that a couple of weeks ago uh, when Jesus calmed the storm? Even his disciples who've been with him for a while, they're, they're asking the question, what kind of man is this? Today it's the Pharisees who are asking the question, what kind of a man is this? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And in one sense, their question is natural and entirely understandable. We all know that one way in which we identify a person is by their friends. There's a proverb that goes back as far as Aesop. A man is known by the company he keeps. These Pharisees who give their whole lives to staying pure by avoiding the wrong kind of people, they're looking at Jesus in this party and they're saying, now we know what kind of a man he is. We see what he's really like. He's not a holy man. He's not pure. Look at the company he keeps. The debate throughout the Gospels about the identity of Jesus always comes to a climax around his claims that he is the Son of God. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, he couldn't possibly be. You see, there are questions behind their, their simple question about Jesus, this supposedly holy man who's eating with sinners. They're asking, is he naive? Doesn't he see the sin all around him? I know Matthew's welcomed him with open arms, but I hope that hasn't blinded him. Surely he can see that he's entered a cesspool here. If he's naive about sin, then he's clearly not the son of God, our all-knowing God. Even if he does see the sin, then his attendance at this party raises another question. Is he careless? Does he take sin lightly? If he's going in there at all, surely he should be going in there protesting against everything that he sees and condemning everyone he meets. If he's careless about sin or takes it lightly, then he can't be related to the holy God of Israel. Those are the questions behind the simple questions the Pharisees have asked. Let's take a moment to see how Jesus answers those questions behind the question. Jesus isn't naive about sin. We see that verse 12. He sees the sin all right, and he sees it like a sickness. Speaking of his friendship with the tax collectors and sinners, he says, it's not the healthy 
who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Jesus considers sinners to be ill. And he considers himself the doctor who can help them. Let's remember very quickly the journey we're on here in Matthew 8 and 9 so far. After demonstrating his power to preach in chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been demonstrating his power over all kinds of illness, including demon possession. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that he had power over nature as he calmed a troubled sea. Last week, we saw him heal a paralyzed man, but only after demonstrating that he had power over sin. Remember? Jesus showed us that having our sin forgiving, having our hearts healed, is more important than any physical illness that we might struggle with. He showed us that he alone has the power to forgive sin. Friends, Jesus Christ is not naive about sin, nor does he take sin lightly. He takes sin more seriously than any person who has ever lived. He hates it because it kills the people he loves. He's come to save us from our sins. He's the doctor. He's come to cure us. And and he doesn't do his healing with a casual prescription or with a short bout of counseling. He does it at the greatest possible cost to himself. This doctor will give his life on the cross for his patients to see them healed from their sin. Folks, I need to ask you, have you asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins? To heal you from your greatest illness? Have you asked the doctor to come and to heal your soul? You could. Today. That's why he came. The Pharisee's question here gives me the opportunity to share with you an important principle for meeting Jesus Christ in these gospel accounts. I hope I'll remember to return to it in the future in this series. The gospel writers are always trying to help us establish Jesus' identity. They want us to be clear about who Jesus really is. So as we read these gospel accounts, there's a basic question that's always in our minds. As we read about Jesus, listen to his words, observe his deeds, we're asking ourselves, is he God? Is he God? Is he God? We have a picture of God in our minds and we use it as a benchmark to see whether Jesus of Nazareth is God. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They were asking themselves that question. As far as they were concerned, the answer was no. No way. He isn't God. We know who God is. We know what God's like. We know that he would never be in there, in that party with those sinners. Now, there's an assumption behind that approach that I want to question with you for a moment this morning. The assumption is that we know God. 
What if our basic assumption is wrong? What if we don't know God as well as we think we do? What if we have a picture of God that's been distorted? What if we're measuring Jesus Christ by the wrong benchmark? As we read on in the New Testament, we're encouraged to see things differently. We're encouraged to make Jesus Christ the benchmark. Jesus becomes the standard, and by watching him, we learn to readjust our picture of God. Let me show you how this is true. John 14, famous passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Philip wants to know for once and for all who God is is what he is like and Jesus answer is profound don't you know me Philip even after I've been among you such a long time anyone who has seen me has seen the father I'm in the father and the father's in me Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The things you've seen me do, these are the things the Father would do and is doing. The things you've heard me say, this is what God the Father would say to you if he were here, because he is. Isn't that amazing? Everything we see Jesus doing, God is doing. That one healing the sick and calming the storms, that's God. The one welcoming children and honoring women, that's God. That rabbi going into that party with those tax collectors and sinners, yes, that's God doing that. That's who our God is. If we have any other picture of God in our minds, we need to start to deconstruct it. We need to reconstruct our picture of God until it resembles more and more what we see of Jesus Christ in the word of God. Paul will tell us in Colossians, the sun is the image of the invisible God. We can't see God until we see Jesus. Until Jesus Christ came, we didn't know what God was like. Not really. But now that he has come, we do. Our God parties with tax collectors and sinners. Perhaps this teaching has startled you a little this morning. Perhaps it feels like it's come out of the blue. It hasn't come out of the blue, so it needn't startle us. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This has been the story all along. Do you remember what the angel said to his parents before he was born? To his mother, you'll conceive and give birth to a son. He'll be called the son of the most high. To Joseph, the angel said, Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
He's the Son of God, but he's coming for sinners. All through his life, he lived among sinners. He was, he was born among them, born into a family of them. We noticed that in Matthew chapter 1 when we looked at Jesus' family tree. He lived among sinners. This isn't an isolated incident here this morning. Friend of sinners, the religious leaders used to call him. They called him that by way of an insult. Jesus grabbed their insult and wore it as a badge of honor. You're right. I am a friend of sinners. Even his death, he couldn't and he wouldn't stay away from sinners. The Son of God crucified between two sinners, one of them realizing his own sinfulness and Jesus' innocence. He pleads with him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say today you'll be in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus welcomes sinners into his father's house where there'd be another much, much greater feast. This party that Matthew's throwing isn't the last time that Jesus will party with sinners. Folks, we need to finish, so let's come back quickly to our opening question. What does God think of sinners? He loves them, wants to be with them. If he lived in our city, I think we'd find him often on Lower High Street. We'd find him going to the wrong sorts of parties and inviting sinful people to the party that he's preparing in paradise, a party where every one of the guests is a sinner, saved by grace. Maybe that's news to you. Maybe you know that you're a sinner, but you'd always thought that you couldn't come to Jesus. Maybe religious folks made you feel unwelcome. This is why we preach the living word of God here. Now you know. Now you know who our God is. If you'd like help to come to Jesus, the friend of sinners, come and speak to me about that. Find somebody you know who knows Jesus. Let them help you find their way, find your way to Jesus. Second question, what should we be thinking about these things, those of us who follow Jesus Christ? We must decide for once and for all to leave our unrighteous self-righteousness behind. Anything that looks down on any other person and says, you're a sinner, you can't come. We need to grow in our love for the sinners of Lower High Street and the sinners of the posh banger suburbs. 
Sinners are everywhere in this city of the scene. Behind every door. We need to learn to follow Matthew's lead. Now that we have responded to Jesus, now that we have chosen that we will go after him and follow him, we must invite our neighbors and our colleagues, our enemies and our friends, anyone who will come. Let's introduce them to, to Jesus. Let's pray.